0: You are listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. My name is Ed Frank. I'm NCBA's Senior Director of Policy Communications. Joining us this week is Kent Backus. Kent, of course, is NCBA's Senior Director of International Trade and Market Access. And we're also joined by Don Close, who is the Vice President, Food and Agribusiness Research, Animal Protein at Rabo AgriFinance. Kent and Don, thanks for joining us.
1: You're more than welcome. Yeah, thanks, Ed.
0: All right, Don, let's start with you. We just start, We just got back from Capitol Hill where you hosted a Beef 101 briefing for congressional staffers um, on a variety of issues, mainly dealing with trade. Um, and you opened up your presentation with a very good impression of former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, who was famous for saying, at least during, I think, the, the Iraq War, maybe previously, but he said, we, we have known knowns, we have known unknowns, and we have unknown unknowns. And you opened up by saying... Um, In sort of the world of international trade and the beef markets right now, there are a lot of unknown unknowns. Uh, Tell us about that. What are the unknown unknowns out there right now?
2: When we started 2019, we were expecting to see record production levels in all three major species. So we knew we had a lot of meat coming at us and that we were going to be heavily dependent on sustaining our export pace to clear that tonnage of product. So that's been a factor in the market from day one. The second one is that we've had this de- developing unknowns of ASF in China. We've had the unknowns of our on-again, off-again trade policy issues and what that means for p- producers' prices. And then the, the fourth unknown unknown is just the the weather conditions that producers dealt with all winter and that has continued into spring and is prohibiting the the planning of the corn crop and what we will have for a feed supply for the coming year. So we got four big unknown unknowns in, out there.
0: Right. So let's delve into one of those. I know. I guess there's some new numbers out today on uh, you know the planting problems in the Upper Midwest and and how that may impact feed supply and prices, obviously for the cattle industry um, later this year and next year. What's what's the latest on that and and what can producers expect on that front?
2: In the WASDI report that came out earlier today. Uh, USDA has re- already reduced planted acres by three million acres and, and, and that's really unheard of to do that in a June WASDE report, but on top of the already lowering acres with expected expectation there will be more decline, they lowered the average corn yield by a full ten bushels an acre uh, and the combination of those two drivers are projected to lower projected ending stocks for a year from now by a billion and a half bushels. So that's going to subst- you know, substantially initiate or drive that rationing process as we go through this, this crop year and this winter uh, until we have a more complete handle on
0: what we will have for corn yield this fall. Okay, and then another thing that you touched on in the Beef 101 was, um, I guess you used to work for the Texas cattle, cattle feeders, um, and uh, when you were there, there was uh, something called the Mandatory Country of Origin Labeling um, uh, mandate, and of course, there was a move on Capitol Hill last week to, to sort of bring that back from the dead. Um, can you explain to folks what happened? How did that whole thing work out when, when, uh, when it was implemented a few years ago?
2: The short answer is not well. Um, when when country of origin labeling was first being implemented, the initial discount on Mexican feeder cattle into the U.S. were, were as high as $150 a head as, as cattle feeders were just bidding in absolute uncertainty. As we got into COOL and it was implemented, we kind of knew more what to expect. That discount was still $50 a head. And that was, that was a dockage to Mexican producers, but that was also pay for the segregation of those cattle at the feed yard, the isolation and, and matching a single day a week that p- the plants that were killing Mexican cattle would accept them. And then the segregation of that product through the cold storage facilities and the labeling of the US label. Well, at the end of the day, all of that money was absorbed and just added cost. Nobody was a net winner. Everybody was a loser. And with the labeling of the product, you know, we we found over time U.S. consumers didn't care. So we added a lot of cost to the pr- to the production process with no identified benefits. But the the une- unexpected consequence of that. Because Mexican beef cattle feeders and processors were able to buy those domestic cattle at the same discount, they were seeing incredible opportunities on feeding cattle and processing in Mexico. So we've had a minimum of two, if not more, fully modern beef plants built in Mexico that are competition for that available supply of cattle today that
0: never would have happened without COOL. Right. And I guess and since then, there's been a WTO ruling against us in favor of Mexico and Canada that could lead to uh, retaliatory tariffs um, if COOL was brought back. And Kent, on an issue related to that, we've seen some some claims out there recently that's kind of a twist on the old COOL debate, and that is um, these claims that, well, if you know people can import beef into the US from other countries basically take the label off if it's from Mexico or wherever put another label on it with an American flag and claim that it's product of America and dupe consumers i guess my question is what the heck is going on where are these what is going on and is this actually happening
1: well i think that's the big question is is it happening because we haven't seen any evidence that it is now it makes for a great story it certainly makes for a compelling argument to bring back A policy like country of origin labeling but i think the evidence we do know the known knowns are that you know mcool was not a success for us it led to further consolidation within our industry which means we have fewer feed yards fewer packers competing for our cattle which means prices are not as strong we don't have as much leverage of producers Uh, it also means that uh, you know as you mentioned we lost a wto case that authorized canada and mexico to assess up to one billion dollars in retaliatory tariffs on U.S. beef and other commodities, and as, and as Don mentioned, you know if it hadn't been for MCOOL, we wouldn't have seen, probably wouldn't have seen the development of two major packing facilities and numerous feed yards in Mexico. So, what did MCOOL accomplish? Well, we lost a WTO case. Looks like it encouraged more manufacturing to move to Mexico or to develop there instead of here in the United States. And it didn't add any value for producers, it, and it did nothing at all uh, to improve food safety or consumer confidence. So, yeah, it sounds like a great idea on paper, but it just doesn't flush out. So, you know, we've seen this come back around, people saying that, you know, we've we got to have, you know, the, all this product to the USA label, and we've got to do all this stuff. Here's the thing. If there's market demand for it, we can already do that through a voluntary process, and through a voluntary label – That's a label that actually pays premiums to producers. We don't have that, you know, because there's not a strong market demand for it. When you put a mandatory label in place, then that takes the ability away from producers to market our cattle and our product effectively. Instead, we're relying on the U.S. government to do that. And that's just not what the government's equipped to do. So, you know, we uh, will continue to... To watch as these things unfold but you know this is just the same tired old story and it it, it, we haven't seen you know any happy ending to it and as long as we take that freedom and ability away from producers to market their product market competitively and to be paid a premium for it and try to put that in the hands of the government no one's going to win history's taught us that we don't need to repeat the, the mistakes of the past all right. And then,
0: um, Don, just one other thing. Kent and I were in uh, China almost two years ago right now. It was right around the beginning of July, I think, when uh, we were there with Secretary Perdue and um, Ambassador Brandstead, um just newly installed both of them at the time, um, to announce that U.S. beef was finally regaining access to China. Um, we obviously haven't seen the growth there that we wanted to because of a lot of non-tariff trade barriers that are still in place. One of the unknown unknowns you talked about um earlier and in your beef one o one talk was you know all the uncertainty around all the trade in all of these different markets, um, one of which is obviously China, the potentially largest one in china. Um, but one thing that we do know is what's at stake there um and how big a market that is. Can you just talk a little bit about the size of the Chinese market and how their their demand and their appetite for all animal proteins, but especially beef, has grown over the last just few years really? that's true and
2: and that that demand growth is is multi-fast driven by multi-factors um the the first one is just the increase in every median income over there that that there are now more and more chinese entering the middle class and the first thing they want to do is increase the amount of protein in their diet the second driver going on there is their diet is becoming more and more westernized all the time, and if you look at the escalation in franchisees of McDonald's and wendy Burger King, a whole host of of our our fast food restaurants, that's a real opportunity for beef and then the third and the and the big big driver and the unknown unknown at this time is the sever, the severity of African swine fever you know our our view from the bank currently is their pork production this year will drop something between 25 and 35%. We believe it's greater than that. A lot of views now is it's something between 50 and 70% of production. That has caused a sharp reduction in pork consumption just because of the the Chinese consumers um, sensitivity to food safety issues. And even though ASF is not harmful to humans, it's driving down pork consumption that is causing that shift to go to other proteins.
0: All right. Well, we'll get Kent on knocking down those non-tariff trade barriers uh, in hopefully the short term, but I know he's going to keep on working on it. Um, Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: You're more than welcome. Thank you, Ed.
0: You've been listening to Beltway Beef. Until next week, eat beef. Check us out online at policy.ncba.org and follow us on Twitter at at BeltwayB. Thanks for listening.